I just figured out that my cigar was in a wrapper. That would explain why you're having such challenges and there. And I was wondering why the cigar wasn't staying lit, and I feel like a fucking idiot. That's okay. You can always edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, why would I edit that part? I got so many listeners going, yeah, Dylan, we already knew you were a fucking <laughs> idiot because I read that review you did on Empire Records. Well, that, Boy. Was, a, that was a questionable decision, I have to admit. Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Special report, Bruce Willis Celebration. Despite the heavy editing I had to do last time, I went back to Dave's place with my recording equipment and mic'd up his back porch again. We seemed to catch Intercontinental Airport on an off night, and the neighbor's dog seemed to be on melatonin, and Dave and I managed to show one of our favorite actors some respect. Join us, please, as we go through the impressive career of Walter Bruce Willis, American Wunderkind who managed to turn his television career into an impressive melee, into action, comedy, and dare I say, art. Aphasia is an inability to comprehend or formulate language because of damage to specific brain regions. You can donate to help patients with aphasia at www.aphasia.org. That's A-P-H-A-S-I-A dot org. Thank you. Walter Bruce Willis. Is his first name Walter? His first name is Walter. I guess I know why you got the bubbles. Wikipedia cannot be wrong. No, that is true. Now, first we have to say that we're very grieved at hearing the horrible news that he has uh, the onset of memory dementia. Yeah, it's, that, it's, a, it's a very unfortunate situation. And uh, since as long as I can remember TV, he's always been there. Apparently he was in the verdict. I don't remember that at all. Well, he was a courtroom observer. Okay. Uh, I, of course, remember him from Moonlighting. I watched yeah, that's, every episode of Moonlighting there was. That's, I think, that's first. Well, certainly the first time I noticed him. And I did see The Blind Date mm. in theater. I know I saw Blind Date on videotape after Die Hard. Do you remember anything from Blind Date? Uh, Kim Basinger, right? Yes. Um, worst date ever, correct? Yes. But I remember the, the poster probably more than I remember the movie for some reason. The one that got me, the one that had me in stitches and that I can't get out of my head, is the opening shot is like, I don't know, three and a half, four minutes. Okay. And it's him getting up in the morning and running around his apartment, and he's late for work. And the, the radio comes on because he's got a radio alarm clock. Remember those? I do. And there's an ad on the radio for the James Brown alarm clock. And that it just goes, ow, 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 ow. And it goes on for like a minute. And he's running around his apartment trying to get shit on. And I just. And that would get you going in the morning. That'll get you going. 
James Brown will get you going. That is the hardest working alarm clock. That and a few lines of cocaine. Well, there you go. <laughs> but I, I thought I thought it was a a mediocre movie, but I I did go see it because of Moonlight. Did you actually see it in the theater? Oh yeah. Oh I wow. Went with my mother. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew who he was, but he was David Addison. Mm. Everybody knew David Addison, and he yeah. was just a, just had that quick wit. Oh yeah. No, he was a uh, uh, he was a force of nature at that time, especially. So, in the first Deadly Sin, apparently was his, his first movie. I've, I've seen that, too. I don't think I've seen that. Uh, that's Frank Sinatra. I know I've not seen that, yeah. then. And it's based on a book by Lawrence Sanders. I read a lot of Lawrence Sanders when I was a kid. Okay, that's why it sounds vaguely familiar. Probably because mm-hmm. I'm aware of the book, you know, yeah. Jacket or something. Yeah, that's right. And he did, you know, the first Deadly Sin, the, the second commandment, and... Mm-hmm. All that, but he also Lawrence Sanders also wrote the the Anderson tapes, right? With Sean Connery, which is an excellent movie, a great book. Blind Date is his third film, and then uh, Sunset, which was a flop, which was about him and James Garner playing Tom Mix and uh, Wyatt Earp, Wyatt Earp yeah, making right, their yeah. first movie about uh, the gunfight of the OK Corral. Um, again, a flop, but it's almost unwatchable. And now, then, was that a was that a movie movie or was that an HBO movie? Nah, it was a movie movie. Okay, yeah. But then, of course, the big one. In country. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> Die hard. Do you want to talk about in country first? Oh, no. I mean, I could spend hours, but your audience would shut off if they haven't already. So don't need that. I remember reading an, uh, an interview Bruce Willis did for Playboy magazine sometime in the mid-90s. So you actually read it for the articles. I, yes. Well, okay. I, I read every single Playboy. <laughs> Maybe I didn't read it cover to cover, but I read every single Playboy. that I was lucky enough to get my hands on. My mother, actually, for my 18th birthday, gave me a subscription to really? Playboy for a year. And uh, much to her chagrin, I renewed it. Well, yes. I mean, can't believe she didn't see that one coming, so to speak. But uh, okay. ha, ha. So, uh, anyway, in the interview, um, you know, they talked about a lot. Of, it was in the late 90s. But he, he talked about how he was the first actor to get $5 million for a movie. It was for Die Hard. Well, no, that's actually kind of surprising when you think about that. Because yeah. even at that point, there was not a whole lot of faith that that would work out, at least as my memory you know, in the industry trades, if you will, which I was reading apparently when I was 17. That's right. Because there was no internet. No, but it, it was, um, and I don't know how McTiernan pulled that off. No. Um, but he somehow convinced him, like, this guy, this guy is a star, and you're going to treat him like a star. And the biggest you, star, apparently. If you want him to walk away from a TV series, then you're going to have to pay him $5 million. And it was a it was a huge leap, and everybody thought it was crazy mm-hmm. until Die Hard came out, and everyone said that was a brilliant move. Yes, I've got a Cohiba going for our audience wondering what that was. All right, so we the imp- the cultural impact of Die Hard, and we had we had an episode I think we talked last year. Yeah, we we, we we spoke about it. We were in the same. Uh, very possibly in the same theater, potentially even at the same screening. Right. When we saw that. Very, very possible. The right. Cineplex Odeon on Augusta mm-hmm. and Westheimer. Yep. And, and that was an unexpected shock. The movie or the fact that we might have. No, been no, the, the movie. Screen. No, definitely <laughs> the movie. Definitely the movie. I, I did. I could not foresee how something 
was that entertaining mm-hmm. for every minute of its right and one pretty, hour and, and fifty five minutes and whatever pretty universally too mm-hmm. yeah everybody yeah you don't find someone who says yeah when they open the safe I'm just not I, I lost yeah there's them. not a lot of people that I've run across at least die hard kind of sucked when the double disc uh, DVD came out mm-hmm. on the bonus edition. There's a fantastic. I can't remember the name of the cinematographer. I'm not going to look it up. Jan de Bont. Jan de Bont was. You're yeah. right. You're right. Um, another like evidence of like a skilled craftsman in that mm-hmm. in a production of that film. He was actually they put together like a short little scene, and it's it's when Gruber and the technician is walking down a hallway. They turn right. They turn left, and then they they open up to the vault. Yes, it's uh, only it's it's a one shot. It's only like uh, I think it's maybe ninety seconds of screen time mm-hmm. or something. But they showed it in sixteen by nine, and then they showed it in the four by three pan and scan. Right, that has to be pretty brutal. I don't it know if was, I've ever seen it in that format. And they they kept going back and forth, back and forth, back mm-hmm. and forth. And Jan de Bont was going, "This is why pan and scan sucks. <laughs> sure, it's bad." And I, when I I taught as a teacher's assistant at the, the University of Houston, mm-hmm. and one time the professor was had could not make it to class and asked me to fill in, and I'd been involved in the curriculum, so I went and said, "Yeah, I can do that. It's not a problem." And one of the things I just squeezed in was that little three and a half minute bonus scene, and you know this is why pan and scan sucks, right? There were people in the class that didn't even know what pan and scan was. Well, sure. At that point, it makes sense. And, and this was this was two thousand one, or maybe maybe two thousand two, and there were there were people that. Uh, well, it couldn't have been. I guess it could have been. When did DVD? When was the advent of DVD? Uh, late nineties. Was it late nineties? Okay. You and I were having a fantastic argument about DVD and DivX. Yeah, oh, back in the not day. an argument, a discussion. Right. Like I went to. This is an aside. We'll get back to Bruce Willis. I promise, but I cannot pass up the story. DVD had come out. Everyone was saying this is the future, and mm-hmm. you and I were resistant because we were like Laserdisc people. Right. And I had very few Laserdiscs, and I had no player because mm-hmm. um, I couldn't afford one. But I knew enough to, like, when I saw them cheap, I grabbed them. And then DVD came out, and we were both like, eh, it might be the future. I don't know. It seemed hard to believe, but primarily because Laserdisc was such a niche at the time. Yeah, right. And so it was like, well, you know, what's in their niche product? You know, product yeah. rather. Well, there was also like one or two years before that, you know, they tried the like the, the mini disc players in the cars. Right. And those were a magnificent failure. Yeah, the, the cartridges mm-hmm. with the little in and I just didn't see who knew? I mean I thought D V D was gonna go that way. But so I went to Circuit City where circuits are state of the art. <laughs> and who where the fuck are those now? And uh there were Racks upon racks and racks on of laser discs and, and and new DVDs, and then they had DVD players which were ungodly expensive, oh, yeah. like three fifty, four fifty. Back when that meant something. Yeah, and I mean now you can get a Sony <laughs> Blu-ray player for like eighty bucks or something. You can probably get a four K for one hundred and twenty. Yeah, right, exactly. And Wi-Fi enabled, yep. smart, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But so anyway, on the other side of the aisle there was this DivX, D-I-V-X. And I, and I asked the guy, what is that? And I know that you've heard this story before because we had the conversation when it happened. Right. And we talked about it years later, but I'm repeating it just for the benefit of the audience. 
I said, what is that? And the store clerk said, well, that's DivX. That's the competitor to DVD. Mm -hmm. Instantly, I was interested because the DVDs were marked like 20 bucks, 25 bucks, and the DivXs were marked like $6. So financially very attractive. Instantly, I was like, tell me more about this $6 competitor. Right. And he said, well, what you do is you you hook this up to your modem. And, of course, then it was like, "Eh, what's a modem? Mm -hmm. You know, I got 97. What's a modem? 14.4. Yeah. Yes. And okay. And so then you buy the disc and you put it in and it connects with the studio or whoever you're leasing the movie. Well, lease, lease the movie from. What are you mm-hmm. talking about? I, I just bought this movie for $6. No, no, no. You've got to pay you, like another dollar or two to watch it right. at home after you've bought the disc for $6. Like who the fuck is going to do that? And I, I don't. I have never met anybody who bought one. Now, no, someone must have. Well, sure. I mean, I we all knew people who bought Beta, right? Right. We all knew people who had HD DVD as opposed to Blu-ray. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I think I actually had one HD DVD. My Star Trek collection yeah. is entirely in HD DVD. Of course, the funny thing is, if you think about it, is now to a certain degree, everybody has DivX. Because that's what you're getting these days is <clears throat> you're leasing a movie. You don't own it anymore. It's all streaming. Subject to the whims of the studios to you know, whether whether they stay available or not is not for you to control. This is very true. So to a certain degree, maybe it won. Well, I mean, the... I'm not. I'm not trying to to create sympathy for a multi-billion-dollar oh, industry, yeah. you know. But they, the industry has changed so much just in our lifetimes. Oh and, yeah. And if you think like there was a it's fi- changed twice, it, yes, at least and, right more, much more than that. I'm sure. And there was a 50-year period in Hollywood where nothing changed. Right. Absolutely fucking nothing except for who owned the theaters, and that was an enormous court case and blah 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 blah. Uh, but. You know, the idea of how you went to go see a movie basically didn't change. Even when television came out, there was it was slow to pick up, mm-hmm. and it took a good 10 years for it to have a, a negative impact. And, and sh- sure, it affected screening, you know. Right, it was a significant threat. Right. Enough for Hollywood to actually change. Yeah. And Hollywood did change. And it was these people like the, you know, Sid Sheinberg and you know, the head of Universal Studios and um, Lynn Wasserman and mm-hmm. people like that who were who were already like very aged, very old, like they were in their late sixties and seventies when they were making these decisions to change. It could not have been easy, and the seventies was was remarkably poor in terms of dollar amount per film. Well, um, at least the first half, I guess. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the late sixties to the to the early seventies, I would say. Like The Godfather was famously a very cheap production. Compared to what it would have been, oh, you're talking about from a budget perspective, yeah, as exactly. To gross revenue. Okay. Oh yeah, I misunderstood. I mean, I mean, even Jaws, like the production right, that of was Jaws, a, was relatively speaking. Right. I mean, that was over schedule and over budget, mm-hmm. but it was still cheaper than a lot of the other movies that Universal was doing just a few years. No, it was a cheap Slocky B movie. Right. Right. And I remember George Lucas saying Star Wars was like a ten million dollar movie, mm-hmm. and normally that that budget would be twenty or thirty million dollars. Right. Right, but they they just did not have. Nobody had that kind of cash, and they sure didn't have the faith. Well, certainly with Star Wars, they didn't. Yes, and then of course in in the eighties, you had another industry change with the the threat of VHS, 
VHS is going from like $150 to 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 actually purchase a movie. Right. That, to, that took a long time. It did. Yeah. From, I mean, you could not. I can't remember what the first real release was that made it affordable. But I remember it was a pretty exciting time because then the floodgates opened. Right. But un, unlike, you know, streaming, to a large degree, VHS and its progeny since then really kind of enhanced the movie experience. You went to go see the movie, right, and then you would purchase it because you liked it so much. Right. Right. Or you went to the blockbuster. We all miss those tremendously, frankly. And you rented it, and even then you probably didn't buy that. Did you always bought the ones that you saw in the theater. Well, you didn't always buy the ones you saw in the theater, but the ones you bought you'd seen in the theater. Generally speaking, we'll see. So that's another industry change that on the distribution side that happened because when I was a kid, these video rental stores they were mom and pop shops, right. uh, or the the Magnavox store where you went and bought your TV. They mm-hmm. had a section that, that was, was cordoned off. Yeah. That's where I rented Blade Runner for the first time, ah, in, you okay. know, nineteen eighty two or nineteen eighty three, whenever, yeah, whenever it right. was, right. And then, of course, I, I guess uh, even in when I was in high school in the early nineties, there was a pan scan on that one, wasn't it? Well, you know it, yeah. And it looked like <laughs> shit, and it yeah. was still just we just thought it was amazing. It was the best, yeah. And um, then, of course, these even even when I was in high school, there was a mom and pop shop that had the you know the the saloon doors in the mm-hmm. back for the <laughs> oh yeah for the for adults the, yeah for the adult section yeah where people did taxes and stuff yeah yeah <laughs> you can say that. And then it was sometime in the early to mid '90s when, like, you know, the first blockbuster showed up, and that was the first evidence that franchises mm-hmm. and chains were, you know, the distribution was being streamlined. Right. And, and then that, the competitor, Hollywood Video, which yeah. took off like a fucking rocket. Oh, it sure did. And actually, in some regards, I remember it being a preferable place. Just blockbuster spread like. Well, they guaranteed you, like, on a new release, they guaranteed you a copy, or your your next rental was, it was free. Free, right? You know, so if, you know, if you had that problem getting eraser just to pull something out of your hat, <laughs> you know, then the next time you wanted eraser, it was free. Yeah, if you wanted Vanessa Williams right there in your TV and out of your Playboy, it was there. I particularly didn't like that movie, but it just. I kind of dug it. Pop, really? Yeah. Eraser? Oh, I, I think there's probably only one or two Schwarzenegger flicks that I don't have some degree of fondness for. Kindergarten Cop? Love it. Stop. Nah, it's a great flick. Okay. Well, okay. Now, let me take that back. Not a great flick. It entertained me. I love Red Heat. See, that's one of the ones that I could do without. Really? Yeah. Jim Belushi and... Yeah, the Lesser Belushi brother. The Lesser... That's that's unfair. But it's true. That's unkind. That one was not one of my. That was not one. Of He's my running things. a cannabis farm in Northern California. Right? I know that shocks you. He's running what again? A, a cannabis, cannabis farm. Gotcha. Yeah, and and he's apparently and it's the brand. It's Belushi Farms. Yeah. I'm sure he's doing very well. Yeah, it's he obvious. Is. But aside from Thief, I don't have much use for Jim Belushi's oh, come filmography. On. Come on, I'm just saying. See, what are the Schwarzenegger flicks I don't like? That'd be tough, actually. At least to have some degree. Hmm. Oh, Conan the Destroyer. Okay, I didn't like that one. Yeah, but I, I guess so. After after the franchising or the corporatization or the, the mainlining of the distribution, the ne- the next big step for for the film industry change would would be streaming. I remember in 2011, mm-hmm. maybe it was 2012. Somebody told me you got an Xbox 360, and I said, like everybody else, yes, I sure do. 
Well, you can download the Netflix app and then you can log in and watch a limited amount of movies. And you're like, I have no idea what you're like, talking about. What are you? That's crazy. Right. And I remember the first time I logged into it and I thought, holy fuck. And I had to be at least three years behind everybody else. Oh, certainly. By that to by the time I found out about it. Yeah. yeah. People had been able to do that for years. Yeah. And so you, do you still do the uh, Netflix mail-in? or have I they, do. Okay, I, I do. didn't know if they were still doing that. But I remember yeah. recently, six, nine months ago, you said you were, and I just didn't know if it was still available. Yeah, and it's it's only like another $3 or $4 a month or something, and it's it's two movies a month unlimited. Okay. And before the recent like post office fuck-up, mm-hmm. I was still getting like two a week. And so eight a month or something for like another 3 or $4, like right. it's totally worth it for me. But uh, there are... I mean, primarily for things you couldn't get on their streaming service. Uh, yeah, I mean, their library is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's technically it's DVD.com. And so, what I find so funny about this is I remember very specifically how Netflix had the streaming side. The streaming was like a minority of the DVD mail-in service. Yeah, it was certainly something that very few people engaged. In. Right, and then it started to grow and grow and grow. And then Netflix said, "Okay, we're going to divide these business models." Mm-hmm. And you're going to uh, – it was like Flickster. Flickster is going to be the streaming side. Remember that. And then the DVD is going to be um, Netflix. Okay. And then you're going to have to pay an additional, like, $8, $8 a month for the streaming service. And it, it was something like a quarter of Netflix subscribers stopped within the next month. Mm-hmm. It was a catastrophic decision. And Netflix had a crisis meeting, and they reversed their decision. And they came back and said, scratch that. Like Willy Wonka, go back, do it all over again. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not doing that. Uh, there's not going to be a difference between the DVD service and the streaming. And everyone said, oh, and, and I, a good portion of the people who canceled their subscription reengaged, yeah. right? And it, that wound up being saving Netflix for the moment. But what we have now, ten years after that debacle, mm-hmm. is exactly what Netflix wanted. Their DVD service is completely separate from from their streaming platform, right? But their DVD service is still a huge money maker. I read an article probably about, I don't know, a year or two ago, and they, and they were still saying, like, worldwide, there's still, like, 30 million people doing the mail-in service. Which, I mean, that's a lot of people, but it seems very plausible. I mean, anybody over the age of 60, it seems very plausible for sure. Right. Right. And that's a lot of folks. And I don't see that service going away, even as, like, in the next, every time I go to Best Buy, that rack is getting smaller. It's getting small. It's kind of actually went there today. It was, uh, it's pretty distressing, but, but so, uh, back to Bruce Willis. Now that we did that full circle, uh, and back to Die Hard, mm-hmm. absolutely stellar movie, absolutely stellar performance, stellar directing. Mm-hmm. I was interested in John McTiernan forever. I still would go give him the time of day, even after, um, that catastrophe he directed. What was the, the remake of rollerball? Oh, that was brutal. I did see that. And that was disappointing because they promised it being – I think we may have had this discussion. I yeah, I think, I think that we did a, a couple of years ago. It was ago. supposed to be a hard R. Right, and Rebecca Romaine Stamos was in it. And it was going to be like full frontal nudity, and um, the dude from Sliders was going to show his dick or something. Uh, not dude from Sliders. That's Jerry O'Connell. That's, that's Rebecca Romaine's husband now. Jerry O'Connell? Yeah. She left John Stamos for Jerry O'Connell? Yeah. Really? He's a Sliders fan, apparently. Uh, the, the, the kid from Stand By Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The one from Sliders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the same kid, yeah. Same guy. That, no, you're thinking wow. of uh, Chris Klein. 
I am, yeah. So he was the dude from American Pie. Correct. We did have this conversation. I thought so. Sorry for our listeners for my slow uptake. But, regardless. But it was was a... It was a genre-shifting event. I mean, it was not dissimilar to what Nirvana did to rock music at the time. It's like everything changed post-Die Hard. And like Nirvana, you know, it was pretty much a whole bunch of, okay, find me the next Nirvana. And you saw Die Hard on a plane, Die Hard on a right. boat, Die Hard on a et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to fathom Michael Bay's career without a Die Hard. Uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, even though it's it's hard to really for me to immediately connect the two, but you're right. I mean, it it definitely shifted to probably. I mean, even Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible is like six, seven years mm-hmm. old, and then that's that's an attempt at a diehard. Correct. In country. Now that we finally got around, I, I do remember that movie existing, but didn't. And that's the thing. Looking through his filmography, it is a shockingly. High volume of movies with a shockingly low batting percentage. Yeah, I mean, right when I mean, right when he jumps off. I mean, Blind Date is is one year, right? Right. Nineteen eighty seven. But then he's got two in eighty eight. He's got two in eighty nine. He's got one, two, he's three, got three in nineteen ninety, including that fucking disaster, the bonfire, of the vanities. Right. Which is which is funny because it's two years after Die Hard. And I remember Bonfire of the Vanities being, I mean, he was absolutely a huge part of the campaign. Yes. And if you look at it post-Die Hard, it was in-country, look who's talking, Die Hard 2, and look who's talking to. Yeah. But he was definitely considered one of the most bankable movie stars on the planet. And really, I guess three of those, man, heck, maybe all four with well, uh, Luke, Luke who's talking to. It's hard to imagine these days how popular... Those movies were extremely popular with Kirstie Alley, who a lot of people look at as batshit crazy well, now. John Travolta. John Travolta but it's just, it's baffling. It is, but you remember, like he he just had a he had an ADR. He was the oh he yeah. was the voice was of the, the kid. kid. So great. what did he do? Two weeks on that? Yeah, maybe and three. Then, yeah, and got his fifty thousand or yeah, whatever. It worked out fine for him. Yeah, um, but he was definitely associated with it. And by the way, if anyone's interested. Going back to one of my categories, which is from another podcast. Mm-hmm. There's a great podcast from Turner Classic Movies, TCM. Mm-hmm. And you can find them on Twitter, at TCM, for as long as they're on Twitter, since a lot of people are jumping ship right now. Yeah, you're talking about the uh, TCM podcast. Podcast, which was hosted, several episodes were hosted by Bing Mankiewicz. And I'm trying to remember the name of the podcast, but it's called The Plot Thickens. Mm-hmm. And they did their first season was actually on Peter Bogdanovich, which shortly before he passed away last January. And then their second season was on was on the Bonfire of the Vanities. And yes. they there was a reporter who actually was on set um, pretty much I mean eighty percent of the production schedule in New York and Los Angeles. And she wrote a book on it. Mm-hmm. And she actually had audio tape of conversations with Bruce Willis and Melanie Griffith and Tom Hanks and Yeah, it was pretty um, engrossing. It was. Did you, did you listen to it? Yeah, I listened to the whole thing. I know I. Re- yeah. Pretty sure I read the book. Back when. Yeah, Tom Wolf. Yeah. No. Well, I read. I know I read the actual. Oh, the reporter's book. You're right. Yeah. I believe I read her book. Which I can't. I'm blanking on the name. Yeah, right now. it was the Devil's name of the, Candy. Yes, same name of the podcast. But yeah. Yeah. And 
after listening to that, I, I had a lot more empathy for what was going on, particularly with the Palma. But I, the, the movie is just such a nightmare. It's 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 not a good flick. And then you you, you follow that up with Mortal Thoughts, mm-hmm. Bomb, Hudson Hawk. But at least he was with his wife. Yes, that's true. Hudson Hawk. Yeah, Bomb. Billy Bathgate, Bomb. The Last Boy Scout, Bomb. Well, was it a bomb or was it just uh, financially disappointing? What's the difference between a bomb? Well, the difference between it is, you know, if you make your money back, right, or if you make a profit of, let's say, 20%, I wouldn't see how that would be qualified as a bomb. You didn't lose money. And I think it definitely made its budget back. I don't think we have the time and space in the podcast right now to go deep dive into that. No, I don't think so either. But, but my, my impression that, that it was a bomb, and my, my, also my impression was most people can't believe that that film was a bomb because <laughs> it is so damn good. Or that it even exists because it is. It's a, it's a piece of work. It's, it's amazing. Tony Scott. Oh, agreed. It's, it's, it's way entertaining. So it actually has a worldwide gross of $114.5 million. How much? One one four point five. Domestic. So, so you know the budget on that was thirty forty million dollars. Well, that's why I was actually taking a look to see what it was. But it yeah, has to be. The are U.S. On, was U.S. and Canada was sixty. Is you already on box office mojo? No, this is Wikipedia, so it must be true. Kind of probably where I got my information on the other topic, which has been since deleted. But I don't, I don't actually see the uh, budget here on this article, but. Allegedly, that's how much. It well, made. I mean, if that's the case, then yeah, it made it made money back, and it probably did not make as much as it was expected right. to make. And that's why I was wondering if it was. A, I mean, this is semantics, right? It, well, yeah, but if you if you watch, and I just saw this last year, mm-hmm. and I have to say, as far as the the story and the production, like there's this is Die Hard in L.A. Yeah, I mean, after I guess after a lot more whiskeys. Yeah, I mean, I just the last Boy Scouts. A, Fantastic film, like maybe it's not Die Hard, but it's ninety percent of Die Hard. I mean, Holly Berry, Damon Wayans. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, it's 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 really entertaining, mm-hmm. right? I don't think it's near Die Hard from a quality standpoint. Really? No, no, it's not even mm-hmm. close. But, but, but that doesn't mean much, you know. It's if you like it, you like it. You, you like it, you like it, and just because something is not near as good doesn't mean it sucks. Because it certainly doesn't suck, at least not to me. But it was a. I, I believe that you know it was considered a disappointment. Right, right, right. Or a bomb. There's, there's not much of Tony Scott that I don't. I mean, Runaway Train, his last movie. People are like, I'm not going to go see a movie about a train. It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Right, it's brilliant. Tony Scott. Yeah, but the, that one, uh, the remake he did, Taking a Pill on One Two Three. That I didn't say. That that was dog shit. That, <laughs> I mean, that might might be his only bad movie. Anyway. But even even the production company had with his brother uh, Scott Free. Mm-hmm. Um, I get excited every time I I see that logo. See I'm like, logo? Oh yeah, the Scott brothers are into this. This is going to be good. Right. And and generally it is. They did a they did like a ten part miniseries on the the Pillars of the Earth. Okay. The famous book by um, whatever the author is. I can't remember the this, author. That, that one I don't know at all. You know, it's it's you know, it's about building a cathedral in the 1300s okay. or something and. And uh, it, was, it was one of these things that we can't make a movie out of it because it's so long. But mm-hmm. the BBC, not the BBC, CBS or somebody made like a 13-part series out of it. It was great. And it was Scott Free who did it. Okay. Uh, then the player. The but player. You, you can't give him too much credit, although it was a fantastic flick. What What is up with Death Becomes Her? That's great. I saw that in the theater, too. and I missed. I the did, book. too. 
Oh, I thought that was a tremendous satire. You, you didn't like that, or it no, doesn't do much for you? It didn't do much for me, but I I do have to say that I remember his character in that quite well. I do too. I remember. I remember. I mean, I saw it in the early months of the pandemic again, probably for the first time since the oh. theater. And yeah, it still holds up in my opinion. I enjoyed it tremendously. I thought that a lot of the shots by Zemeckis were really. Of course, Zemeckis is. Oh my god, I forgot that was Zemeckis. He's a pretty good filmmaker before yeah. it went full on CGI replacement of people to weirdness. Yeah, you know. And it's a pretty mean-spirited, dark flick. It's a yes. pretty good satire and not like a gentle one of Hollywood and the beauty culture. So I, I liked it quite a bit. And I completely forgot about... Goldie Hawn? No, I can't forget Goldie Hawn. Um, Bette Midler? No, she's not in it. Oh, uh, what's her name? Blue Velvet, David Lynch. Isabella Rossellini. Red Rossellini, yes, and how she's... Darn near nude throughout a high percentage of her scenes, and I completely forgot about that. Oh, and she's like playing like a witch or something. Yeah, she's the one who's granting the. Yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah, see, ironically, that's the part of like, oh, that. Everybody fucking remember when Isabella Rossellini was full of nude. You're talking about Death Becomes Her. (laughs) Yes, I saw that. Or you weirdo, you're talking about that scene in Blue Velvet. She she was like dating Martin Scorsese at the time or something. She was uh, dating uh, Lynch. Lynch. Mm -hmm. Um, she pops up in I think. I don't remember, Alias or something yeah. for a season or two that's good. But, but any, anyway, like, I appreciated his character. In, yeah, and I think that, that really did a lot to rehabilitate his image as an actor. actor. Yeah. Because, I mean, he was very much against any of the previous roles he had taken. It, it was, and I was going to bring this up, that you know, a lot of people, when they think of Bruce Willis, they think of Die Hard, they think of The Last Boy Scout, they mm-hmm. think of these, these huge franchises. These large totemic but they don't flicks. think of Death Becomes Her or that that great attempt he made at Breakfast at Champions, which nobody saw and, and was kind of disappointing. But mm-hmm. nobody comes out and says, yeah, I hated it. Because it is seen as this, like, valiant, noble effort of him to, you know, really attach to Vonnegut, which is mm-hmm. very – that's one of the problems everyone has with Vonnegut is it's very unfilmable. Right. You know. Um, and – this is not this is not a guy like yes he was in pulp fiction that next year but this is not a guy who doesn't care about art that only cashes in that no, only it's takes an, paychecks it, he well, does try you know? yeah it's an interesting combination hmm. because for obvious reasons he was perceived as sleepwalking through the past what probably 4 or 5 years right and right. in retrospect because it was uh, information we just didn't have at the time it was a bunch of i don't know what's going on i guess he just desperately needs the money yeah and, but before then, it was a strange combination of okay, well, I I don't know why he's in this, and then oh, he performed quite well, yeah, and took some interesting chances. So I'm sure we'll see more of those as we go through this. Yeah, now I have to bring this up in 1993, Loaded Weapon One, which I just saw last week, which I don't think I've ever seen. Oh my god, <laughs> it was that was way better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, I'm Estevez and uh, Samuel, Samuel Jackson. Jackson and Whoopi Goldberg. And he plays John McClane. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so I've I've got to tell you about this because when you when you watch it, you're going to see this a mile away. Uh-huh. So this is I'm not spoiling anything for you, but you know Estevez pay, plays the crazy cop from right. Lethal Weapon. You know he's even got he's the, Mel Gibson. He's Mel Gibson. He's got the mullet. You know. And it's got this funny, he's walking into his trailer on the beach, 
right from mm-hmm. from, yeah, straight, lethal, straight from lethal weapon lethal two. weapon two yeah one and two i think well yeah and, and one but it's in it's on a different beach in two. Oh, i believe you and if you if you look at it on the beach in, in two like in <clears throat> in loaded weapon one it mm-hmm. looks by the way there is no loaded weapon two yes <laughs> but it, it's kind of like history of the world part one there is no history of the world part two. but if you look at it it i swear it's like they use the same establishing shot mm-hmm. from lethal weapon two so and the funny thing is, you know, uh, cut to Estevez walking into his trailer, and it's like a—I mean, I mean, it looks like a, a suburban home in Pasadena, California. It's fucking huge inside. Yeah, he lives in a tarnas. You know, so there's, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, helicopters come to shoot it up, just like in *Lethal Weapon* two, right? And uh, chaos ensues. Everything's blown up, and it's just ungodly amount it actually reminds me of the cut scene from robocop of the guy getting pumped by ed 209 on the table and then the, the inserted footage of he just keeps getting shot and flopping on that like it just goes on ad nauseum and then it's all over and the helicopter is hovering making sure their estevez is dead you mm-hmm. never see estevez during the entire thing and then out of the rubble comes bruce willis with the with the white with the tank white. top on and Blood in his hair. Mm-hmm. He was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and the guy in the helicopter was, hey, is this 2402 Pacific Coast Highway? <laughs> Bruce Willis was just traumatized. He's like, no, this is 2800 Pacific Coast Highway. You're looking for the guy that's three blocks up north. That sounds so, so bad. <laughs> That sounds so bad. Oh, we thought it was great. Oh, I'm, I, it could be good. Okay, I've got one more story to tell you. Okay. Which is sometime in the fall of 1997, maybe in the spring of 1998, mm-hmm. whenever it was just after uh, Die Hard. That would have been no, with a Vengeance? Die Hard 3. Die Hard with a Vengeance when he's in New York with mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson. And I, and I think it was out and I was trying to convince you to go. And you're like, I'm not seeing that. I don't or I don't want to see it this weekend or whatever it was. I'm like, so my comment was, I'll never forget this. It's got Bruce Willis in it. The guy does not make a bad movie. The minute, (laughs) the minute, the last syllable, like I was not even finished formulating the pronunciation of the last word Mm -hmm. in that sentence before you said striking distance. (laughs) It's a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> I could not even. Oh, uh, yeah. Striking distance. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. And of course, I couldn't remember. Oh, yeah. He was in Billy Bathgate, too. But but th- that's a that's a f- famously bad movie in which he plays a character named. Tom Hardy. Yes. That had uh, Sarah Jessica Parker in it, didn't it? It did. Yeah. In a Baywatch bathing suit, somewhat, if I remember. Yes. It's about all I can remember now at this point in that. That's all you should remember. That's probably fair. The big one, 1994, Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Tarantino's Palm Door. Right, and there's nothing to be said about that. And then North. Uh, pass. Which is about the polar opposite. I saw that in the theater. It was so bad. And then we were pissed off because there was another there was another friend I was in there with. Mm-hmm. He was talking to his friend the entire movie because the movie was so fucking bad. That was a, wasn't that a, was that a Rob Reiner flick? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then Color of Night. Yeah, the famous dick shot. Yeah, I remember that. I, I didn't like that film either. And, and, yeah. and then, of course, everybody was talking about his dick being in the tub scene. And the, I never 
I never, it, surely on a screen that big, I would have seen it. And I don't think I ever have. Yeah, it's, it's not one of those. I, I remember the movie existing. I remember that controversy and oh my gosh, but. Yeah. Nobody's Fool. Yeah, Paul Newman's look. Yeah, I don't rem- even remember him in that. I think he was uh, maybe Paul Newman's daughter's husband or something like that, maybe. I, th- yeah. I think it was a cameo almost to a certain degree. His daughter-in-law was Melanie Griffith. I th- thought his son was uh, Dylan Walsh. I may be misremembering. I may be totally I wrong. thought it was Nobody's Fool. Uh, you're probably right. I just yeah. Die Hard with a Vengeance. vengeance. Great, great, great flick. Yeah, it bounced back well because yeah. Die Hard 2 was a... Boy, that's a troubling flick. Uh, did you listen to the rewatchables? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it is a troubling flick. I haven't seen it in... Oh, it's been many, many, many years. What, I, I have a pretty strong memory about Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 2. Because Die Hard 1, as I said, was pretty universally beloved. I even took my mom, and my mom is pretty much not a fan of most movies and has a real problem with ultra-violent movies. Mm-hmm. And Die Hard is like, yeah, she got on board with that because it was so well done. Yeah. And so we went to go see Die Hard 2. I think pretty much the weekend came out, and I think she was in tears because it was such a hyper-violent, over-the-top. It, that's a pretty mean movie. It is. Uh, I love it. I haven't seen it in so long. I don't even know if I've got an opinion on it. I just remember the icicle in the eye and the plane yeah. with 250 passengers. and Yeah, well, the rewatchables that was on it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, again, hitting that, that category the, from another podcast. Right. Bill Simmons spends an enormous amount of time on uh, what the picking nits. Mm-hmm. And all of those are absolutely correct. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, a, a plane of 200-something people like, just crashes and dies. And then they move on. And, yeah, yeah. next scene, it's like, so what's else going on? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very unusual choice, <laughs> even in the time it was. <laughs> and then I read to watch it now, and I have not seen it in close to the now, because I really don't have a whole lot of interest in revisiting, to be honest with you. Oh, you got to see it again. Oh, I, I don't doubt it. It's just, it's just not what, I don't have a whole lot of interest mm-hmm. in revisiting Die Hard with a Vengeance, which I feel is a significantly superior film. Oh, yeah. I, I would say so. I mean, I think my biggest hang-up on it, even watching it now, is like, can we... Could you have fucking cast someone else as the police captain? Like, Dennis Franz. <laughs> I think he was born in a blue polyester shirt with black pockets. Right. I just... And just seen him in that role so much. Hill Street Blues. He, he has got career. a tire. So... And then Four Rooms. Four Rooms, same year. Boy, that was a tremendously flawed exercise. So, he's in the last uh, Four Rooms as a vignette. Mm-hmm. So, there's four rooms, it's an four stories, it's anthologies. Because uh, you had Rodriguez, Tarantino. I can't remember the other Allison two. Anders, I think. I think so. And I don't remember. It wasn't Bombback. Tarantino directed the last He did the last right? one. The only okay. one that I thought had any degree of it was success. was them in the room. Okay, so mm-hmm. I'm watching... Um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. This sounds familiar. Go on. It's a rerun. I think it was 1962, 1963. Mm-hmm. Starred Steve McQueen. It sounds very familiar. Like, I, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. But it's it, basically a, the it's same basically type of story, this, if I remember. It is. Yeah. Steve McQueen meets the, uh, Fritz Long, of all people, in a bar. Okay. He's hitting on a girl, and Fritz Long walks up. And I have a proposition for you. Mm-hmm. And the proposition is, uh, you know, you, and it wasn't uh, lighter. It was, uh, 
I think it was a lighter, but it wasn't a Zippo. Okay. And, you know, you light it, and then the first time it fails, I, I take a finger off. And he decides ultimately not to do it because Fritz Long's wife comes in and puts a stop to the madness. And that, and she says, uh, you know, you, what did he promise you? Mm-hmm. She asked, what did he promise you if you do this? He says, like, a new Cadillac or something. She's like, no, I've, all the Cadillacs are mine. She picks up her... She picks up her purse to walk out, and like three of her fingers are gone. Yeah, I, I have seen that. So yeah, but she, it's, it's a it's a pretty flawed exercise. I'm glad they did it, especially at the time because that was really when the uh, independent cinema, you know, yeah. directors were starting yeah. to get a lot of clout. You know, much like the you know the new Hollywood of the '70s, and they had their failures and they had their exciting, but they're all interesting exercises. And I thought that one was, although it just didn't work all that well. Worked tremendously well. The '90s didn't imagine did manage to spread some cash around. Oh yeah, the indie directors, which the same year, Twelve Monkeys, which was brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. it's one of the few Gilliam movies that I really don't have any significant flaws with, or significant problems with. Is a better way to put it. I mean, all of his films are very they're polarizing. Yes, they are. From a style and content perspective. Well, he's but, a polarizing person. Oh, absolutely. He, I mean, he lives to, or he directs his job is to largely be yeah. polarizing. And sometimes successfully. And 12 Monkeys, though, was just an ex- exquisitely well put together time travel story. My, my favorite quote from Terry Gilliam, and I don't want to get political here. That's okay. But my favorite quote from Terry, Terry Gilliam was, Amber Heard has proved me wrong. She's a brilliant actress. <laughs> uh, Nineteen ninety-six, Last Man Standing. That is a fucking awesome Walter Hill shoot 'em up. And it's a remake. Yojimbo, right? Yeah, yeah. That one's uh Yeah, I really dug that flick. Well, I saw it on I think HBO or something at the time, and I didn't think anything of it. And then, but I hadn't seen Yojimbo. Mm-hmm. So many years later, I'd seen Yojimbo, and then I, I saw it again. And within the first minute of the credit sequence, when he spins the bottle and it says, go this way. Right. Then instantly, I'm like, oh, this is Yojimbo. See, I, and I saw it in the theater. Yeah. And it had a sound mix in the theater that I, I mean, I recall this pretty specifically it being somewhat similar to Heat, where the gunshots oh. were so loud and so visceral. That it really changed the dynamic. Uh, heat was fucking loud. So I, I think that's part of the reason why I've always had a fondness for it was I, I remember that pretty specifically that the theater I was at or the mix or both yeah, were so well done that, I mean, just it was explosive. Sound and then you had Chris Walken acting like a freak, which is always a, yeah. good for a couple chuckles. Sound mixes can do that to film. They can make and break films. Absolutely. I mean, there's a huge difference at the home viewing experience, whether you're watching it through a TV or a surround sound. Mm-hmm. And once you hear it the one time, it's hard to go back. Well, like it does you, impact the viewing experience, as you said. Like you said, in Heat, I remember um, I'd seen Heat in a six-screen Lowe's theater in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and it was it was fucking loud. Oh yeah, that and was deafening. As we were leaving the theater, it was playing in a in another screen, and you could it was during the the downtown fight scene, and you could. You could hear it all throughout the hall, all throughout the theater and the hallway and the lobby. And I remember passing the the ticket guy, 
on the way out the front door. It was like, damn, man, that is loud. He's like, all fucking day long. <laughs> all day long. That's all I hear. It's all I hear. That the, you know, if one theater isn't playing the the gunfight, the other theater is. Right? So is it between that and the uh, opening uh, truck heist. Yeah. Yeah, that was loud, too. Oh, it was exceptionally loud. The double tap to the chest. He had to get it on. So, um, <laughs> to get it on, man. Yeah. So uh, the, the other the other thing that that relates to that and to another digression off of the Bruce Willis thing, but I saw this interview with Warren Beatty, mm-hmm. and I don't even remember what disc it was on, but he was talking about uh, Shane when he Shane Shane or? okay yeah with the uh, Alan Ladd, Alan Ladd. yeah, yeah. Uh, when he, he watched it when he was young mm-hmm. and he was just blown away by it just and the gunshots were just loud as hell and he tracked down the guy who recorded the sound in the mid 60s when Warren Beatty became a producer mm-hmm. and he was putting together Bonnie and Clyde okay and so he said I want the same gunshots what did you do for Shane and he was talking about oh we went out to uh joshua tree national park and we took some trash cans out in a canyon and um we took some cannons some old cannons that we had uh found at God, some you know, other they, they national park you know they're always trying to they tracked them down it took a lot of effort and they were setting the cannons off inside the trash cans and they were recording the reverb off of it and uh warren Beatty was just just amazing. That was genius. Mm-hmm. So he effectively did the same thing. For Bonnie and Clyde. For Bonnie and Clyde. And I just watched Bonnie and Clyde a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I, I don't particularly like that movie. Yeah, I, I did see your review. I was kind of surprised that you were not enthusiastic about it. Right. And I remember what being more enthusiastic mm-hmm. about it 20 years ago. Now, I have not seen it in 24 years. Yeah. So... But, you know, things change. They absolutely do. So, but, but the sound on it was great. It was just great. So Beatty was talking about how they premiered it in New York. Mm-hmm. And he sat in the first screening on, on uh, the premiere day. And it sounded like shit. And the gunfire starts up. And he's like, something is wrong. So he went up to the projectionist. And apparently he had a even typed notes himself about how to screen Bonnie and Clyde. And Which what, got summarily ignored, I presume. Oh, you, you bet. And he was talking to the, to the projectionist, who back then was also the sound guy, because mm-hmm. the track for the sound is on the celluloid, which is read through a, right. a separate mechanism to, to funnel out to the system inside the theater. And he said, man, the sound downstairs doesn't sound right. And the sound guy instantly was like, this sound on this track is shit. This is, this is the worst soundtrack I have ever, ever had since Shane. But don't worry, I fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, good sir. <laughs> yeah. Warren Beatty was a little bit upset. Mm. All right, so back to... And then he goes into Beavis and Butthead to America, which I, like I was saying before the cast started, I don't remember him in it. Yeah, he, he played uh, the guy who was trying to to put a hit out on his wife, who was played by Demi Moore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they had the famous scene of, of he thought that Beavis and Butthead were hitmen. I do remember so that. So he said, yeah, I want you to do my wife. 
<laughs> Beavis is like, yeah, I'll do your wife. <laughs> Hor- horrible movie. What, Beavis and Butthead do America? Yeah, I was not impressed. Oh. I, watched, I watched a lot of Beavis and Butthead on, on MTV. I didn't like it as much as I, I was hoping to, but I did enjoy it. I took my future wife to that, and she still decided to marry me after we went to it. Yeah, I'm assuming it took a lot of damage. My favorite scene was uh, him waving his hand in front of the the automatic urinal and it flushing by itself. Yeah, it, and I need to watch that again. That was six hours of entertainment <laughs> for those two fuck-ups. <laughs> Fifth Element. The, one of the more batshit movies ever made. Other than... Is it good? It's good. Is it? I. It's good. I... I find this movie fascinating to watch. And my wife loves it. Yeah. But I, I, I still don't even know if I like it or not. I don't like Ruby Rod. No, that's an incredibly grating character. Yeah. But other than that, I like the movie. It just is so great. I, I, it, every time I see it, I walk away just completely baffled. Not necessarily because I don't understand it, but uh, it's, it's hard to imagine how Luke Besson dreamed it up and made it. Because if nothing else, it's inventive as all get out. I mean, I don't particularly care for the whole segment with the opera singer, which I know oh, is one of those where yeah. it's like, what? That's one of the top you know, parts of it. It's just not my, it's not my bag, baby. <laughs> and I think it would be more digestible without Ruby Watt. I think everything would be more probably, digestible. Without. Probably, but I mean, it's very strange because like Bruce Willis and Gary Oldman never even share a scene together. Yeah. The, the whole movie is, I, I need to watch it again. It's just it is, bonkers. It's very, I see it about once every four years. And uh, Luke... Luke nine hundred two one zero is in the beginning. Yeah, Luke, Luke Perry. Luke Perry. Yeah. Yeah, and that whole segment is to a certain degree. It's like I don't even understand why this part of the movie exists. Is he's like? It does make sense. I mean, it plays in the plot, but at the same time, it's like this didn't have to be here. Yeah, I'm glad it's there, but it's a very strange movie. Well, I mean, it it served as a very effective vehicle to introduce Miliovovich to the world, who well, then, yes, was basically just a supermodel before then. Since then, she's been a very effective cash actress. Yeah, she can kill the hell out of zombies. Yeah, uh, the Jackal remake. Th- th- that was f- fucking horrible. That was pretty bad. That was pretty bad. It was horrible. Mercury Rising. And though. one of the one of the worst things about watching the Jackal. It was Jack Black. <laughs> no, there was that scene where uh, you know, Bruce Willis goes to a, a gay bar to pick up a guy and then just to use him as cover because mm-hmm. he needs some place to stay. So he goes to a gay bar because those guys are closeted and hiding, so no one's going to be looking for him. And he moves in and takes over his house and is using his house as a basically a safe house to pull his operations from. And, and uh uh, the gay guy goes out for like a business trip or something and comes back and his whole house is trashed and he just starts immediately like bitching and screaming like, what are you doing? You know, I can't believe you're doing this to me and blah, 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 blah. And Willis just picks up a gun and plugs him right there in the living room and the dude falls. Mm-hmm. And the whole theater laughed. The whole theater laughed. And well. I've, I've been thinking about that for 20-something years. Why? Well, it's... in. Well, when I, when I hear that, right, there's two ways to interpret this. Yeah. In my mind, right? It's like, okay, does that mean that the entire theater, you know, found gay people, you know, morally reprehensible and the elimination of said character as, you know, not a human, so therefore hilarious? 
Or is it the other side where there's a parallel to Raiders of the Lost Ark? Where you have a dynamic show of force and fury and everything else that's immediately silenced, which is just, it can be horrifying or hilarious. So I, I don't know. No, that's a good point. There's there's also a, a, a redo of that certain type of situation in a horrible film, No Escape. Oh, with, I with Ray Liotta. I, I know that flick, but I've not seen it. Yeah, I mean, he's deserted on an island for mm-hmm. reasons I'm not going to go into, and he, they put him it's into escape this. Escape from New York, essentially, isn't it? Uh, yes, to a certain degree. To a certain degree, yeah, and and uh, he, they immediately throw him into this like gladiatorial match, and there's this big fucking Hulk of a man, and immediately like, in the like theater, like Escape from New York. <laughs> yeah, they're in a ring. Yeah, yeah but, but, going, but, but that I'm, I'm fight go. that fight goes on for like three and a half minutes I'm or joking. something. But no, but that's true. That's true. Uh, but I, I just, I was preparing myself for like a five minute fight scene, and then Leota just kills the guy in one stroke, and it, it it reminded me like, oh well, that's the indie thing, right? Just pulls the gun out and shoot him. I didn't particularly see that in in. Uh, in the jackal, although you could be right. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's one of those I haven't seen it. Gosh, since I rented on video, maybe two years after it was out, mm. so my memory of it is not very much. The only thing I remember is Jack Black's arm getting blown off. Really, yeah, that's about the only thing I recall from it. And going, oh yeah, Richard Gere's in this. I forgot. I don't like Richard Gere doing an Irish accent. Yeah, I've never. Yeah, done. which I didn't care for, and he was a little overweight at the time, and he was known for being, you know, American gigolo. Mm-hmm. For him to be. In any movie, overweight was just very strange. But then, of course, there was there in that particular scene that I referenced earlier. Right. It's like either you're laughing at the gay guy getting plugged, or you're you're recalling like a domestic situation. Like, wouldn't it be nice to just silence that domestic partner of yours if they're just going off? And I, I think either one of those or a combination of both is what everybody was laughing at. Uh-huh. And I just made me feel like extraordinarily uncomfortable. Gotcha. But the real reason why I went to go see the Jackal is the real reason that nobody wants to talk about, which is the plot of the Jackal. Oh, yes, there is one, is there? Which is to, yeah, there is, which is the Jackal is hired to assassinate the First Lady of the United States. See, I don't even remember that, that very is, important detail. That is the plot of the movie, which, which at the time, First Lady of the United States was Hillary Clinton, and so there was a groundswell of people who probably would not have minded if the jackal were around taking out someone of that nature which was very all i'm saying is just because you can make something Mm -hmm. including a remake of a great film like the day of the jackal Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you should make something it's kind of like don simpson's entire career we shall not speak ill of don simpson (laughs) Don't cross that line. <laughs> okay. But I don't remember there being a lot of fans of Nancy Reagan. And, of course, I don't remember a movie about wanting to assassinate Nancy Reagan. But, of course, then again, I don't remember yeah. the plot of the Jackal being about. Nancy Reagan was getting a lot of shit when she was first lady. She was. But it's, sure. it's just one of those that, you know, I, like I, said, I don't remember the plot. Barbara of the Bush got a lot of shit yeah. when she was first lady. Although You're that was just baffling. Her. It's like I don't understand why just because yeah. she looks much older than her. Than her old, husband, old and, husband. She, and, she, and she wore like <laughs> traditional, like old style fifties mm-hmm. dresses pearls. and pearls, and like that was wow. Okay, yeah, okay. Mercury uh, Rising. I I saw that. Uh, I don't even know if I saw that. 
him trying to take care of the oh. autistic kid. Yeah, there was something. Maybe I did it see it. Maybe on HBO. Code Breaker. Yeah. Somewhere. Armageddon. Armageddon. I suspect you and I have very different interpretations of how good he was in that. Because I do think that, objectively, he did a fantastic job in Armageddon. Pass. I think it's worth uh, watching it just to pay attention to him. Because I think yeah. that, you know, what, who, if people have a problem with Armageddon, I mean, they're obviously killjoys, but they probably have some good points. But I do think that he actually had a fairly effective performance as a father. Oh, um, well, I'm not going to argue that. And, and like a lot of his films, even the ones that you don't care for, he pulls in a really good performance. Right. Um, you know, and, and Bruce Willis is one of these people who does have a seems to be i know that there there have been a lot of a lot of problems in the early 2000s and 2010s a lot of people who have worked with him said that he's he turned into a a bit of a dick but at this time i remember in a lot of interviews like hey i'm getting paid fucking 10 million dollars for this i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna give it 110 percent you know uh the siege i remember that being a reasonably good movie and him being a very small part of it I think that's what Denzel and Annette, Annette Benning, yeah. and terrorist attack in New York. Yeah. Obviously, a few years Tony before. Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. It was before 9-11. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you could make that movie now. Um, I well, think you could certainly make it just not the same way. Yeah. It's yeah, a Edward Zick film. <laughs> yeah. Breakfast of Champions, which he shot in the, that town in, in uh, Idaho, Montana. I think it was Idaho. Maybe. Man, that doesn't even look familiar. I didn't know that. Not, yeah, that doesn't. I mean, I mean, you were referencing it earlier, and I'm just. Yeah, well, there was a podcast that, that again, I think it was the plot thickens had put out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was called. I think the name of the town was uh, Daily. So the name of the, name of the podcast was Dailywood. And it was about he and Demi Moore purchased a ranch out there that was one of the largest ranches in all of idaho and mm. and just as as they spent more and more time out there it was bruce bought a bar then bruce bought a movie theater and then bruce bought a shopping center and he just started having more and more influence on the town which initially everyone was like oh this is great and then it just very quickly turned into fucking serious <laughs> like i've got i gotta have an argument with bruce willis to you know for water rights and it just was he bugged out about 15 20 years ago but it was it was not a positive experience by everybody on board gotcha the sixth sense was a landmark movie yeah that was was that the last movie where nobody knew the ending <laughs> it's got to be pretty close right uh that's right right before the internet was in right, house right that that makes sense, and I do think it was one of those. It's probably I can't. I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm mistaken, but I can't remember the last twist ending of a movie that you in which you were truly surprised. Well, truly surprised, or it wasn't in. You know, if you didn't see there movies now, if you don't see it opening weekend, you're finding out what happened, no matter how hard you try. To stay away from it. Although I've been successful with the Doctor Strange movie, I don't know what happens in that. Yeah. But broadly speaking, there's a twist in the beginning of Doctor Strange. Okay. 
Um, and it, it kind of reminds me of the Jan twist. Jan Lee dies? Uh, a what? I said Janet Lee dies. Janet Lee dies. Oh, sorry. It was at the beginning. Sorry. I didn't catch that. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of it, and, and I don't want to tell you what the movie is because then it'll, it'll clue you into the switch of sure. the beating of Doctor Strange. But it, uh, I, I can't remember the last time I, I sat in a movie and then something happened at the end and was like, oh, it's like that. And, you know, the the famous one that everybody talks about is, uh, you know, The Usual Suspects, mm-hmm. which which – Back then, people were like, you've got to go see this movie because it Just because has a twist ending. It's a great twist ending. And, and people would go. Mm-hmm. People would see it, right? That would be the attraction. That would be the attraction. Of it. That would be the pull. It was kind of the same thing with Seven. Like, you got to see the ending of Seven. Right. And they, they weren't necessarily talking about the box. They were talking about Kevin Spacey mm-hmm. showing up as spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As a really weird dude, who def- I mean, gosh, he was effective at that. As it turns out, oh, it's yeah. Um, and I met someone just recently who said they didn't have a problem with what he, what he's been canceled for. Which entirely off-topic discussion, anyway. So he doesn't have a problem with him being canceled, or he didn't have a problem with his behavior. Didn't really have a problem with his behavior because there it was not pedophilia. Uh, I remember in some reporting that there were some minors involved. I, you know, yeah. I, I literally don't. We're not experts on the yeah, Super I, Sunday I don't podcast. We just talk about movies. Uh, the Story of Us, did you ever see that? No. I have not. I remember it was very well praised at the time. All I remember was Bruce Willis and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. And remember seeing and saying, yeah, I just don't have a whole lot of interest and I'll pass because he's not blowing anything up. Well, I remember liking the whole nine yards. I, I, I remember year. liking that. I mean, I, I remember thinking, boy, this is pretty dumb, but I inexplicably enjoy it. Of course, I had Amanda Peet. And, you know. Oh, this is when she's, like, nude for, like, five straight minutes of screen time or yeah, something. Yeah, it was a bit it was, much, was, but was, I was yeah. okay with it. But, but that was also, like, it was supposed to play on the audience. Like, the audience was supposed to, like, Jesus Christ, when's she going to put a shirt on? Right. And the answer is, oh, for it won't, it'll be for a while. Right. So, I mean, I, I like that kind of fourth wall breaking so there's this not to, to go back to another bruce willis movie where in which he has a cameo the loaded weapon one okay so instead of patsy kinsett mm-hmm. there's kathy ireland okay and kathy ireland is kind of in this uh, actually she's in sort of a sharon stone role so they have her in the interrogation room and there's there's all these jokes with the leg. They even actually got a lot of the guys who are in the scene for basic instinct mm-hmm. they're actually playing the their exact same roles in this they were recreated scene, yeah, of course, recreated, including Newman from Seinfeld. Is, That's right, it was right. Newman. And so Kathy Ireland's going back and forth, and her legs going up and down, and just the way the camera plays left to right, it's actually quite brilliant. It's okay. actually very, if you know Basic Instinct, it's a very good scene. So mm-hmm. um, the the real funny part actually is after that scene, There's there are, I think, three panty shots of Kathy Ireland. In which she is deliberately playing with your eyes, and they're in that sense they're breaking the fourth wall, right? Where she moves the leg real quick, and you're like, "Oh, that's our panties." <laughs> and I just, I just thought that. I mean, yes, it's, yes, it's, it's objective, or objectifying, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's Ireland is and the director are playing with your, your expectations with, or your right. desires, or yeah, and that's why it was funny. 
Gotcha. And so there was like a so in that way, Loaded Weapon One wasn't just a wasn't just a, a stupid movie. Um, it it actually had a had a component that was playing with the audience, much like Naked Gun was. Mm-hmm. I just saw Hot Shots last night, and I can't say that Hot Shots had that same yeah level I, of I haven't seen that entertainment forever. to it. Right. But it did have Estevez's brother. Yes, Carlos was in it. Sorry. <laughs> Carlos Estevez. So the whole nine yards actually had a sequel, the whole ten yards. Yes. Which was not not very good. Yeah. Um The Kid. I what is the kid? I, it's I I didn't see the kid either. And I I know nothing other than the cover art of the VHS cassette that I never rented. I don't even know that. Unbreakable. That continues his his long um, tradition of working with uh, M Night Shyamalan. Yep. Um, I thought I thought Unbreakable was good. I thought that it was it was a movie that needed a lot of patience, and I think that the audience just didn't want patience. I think the audience really wanted something that was like The Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. and when it when it came up short, the audience was cruel. But it's really well regarded. At I least, think that it is at least on. A, the fans that it has, they're fans. And I hate to say this. I've never seen Unbreakable. It's good. I've heard this. I've, I've just, yeah. For but whatever it, reason, I've just never seen it. Yeah, but again, it's just not. It's one of those films. It's just not for everybody. And that's how I, that's how I feel about Shadow Alon. He's, he's not for everybody, despite the fact that Sixth Sense was just this universally loved movie. Mm-hmm. I think that his films since then have just been very niche. Yeah, it, you know, I have not seen many of his films beyond Sixth Sense, hmm. and most of them just because I just didn't see the appeal to me personally. Yeah, although I heard Old was pretty good. Yeah, I heard that was pretty good. I I like The Village. I like Signs. Signs was pretty good. Yeah. Signs was good. I liked. Yeah, with Mel Gibson and mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix was in Village, too, okay. with Sigourney Weaver and William Hurt. Like it had this just amazing cast. I think Dallas Bryce Howard was in it. That sounds right. Regardless. So, Bandits. This is not a good movie. That's with Billy Bob Thornton and Kate Blanchett, right? Yes. And okay. then they're in a polyamorous relationship. Well, of course. Yes. <laughs> um, so, now you've got... Just, oh my God. So, have you seen Hearts War? No. Okay. Yeah, it's with uh, Colin Farrell. That is worth your time. I've heard. I mean, I remember you were quite the fan of it. Yeah, I just saw. I just watched that like two, three weeks ago. Okay. And it's still good. Um, I am, as I'm sure my audience knows, I am a World War II nut. I know a lot about the war. I read a lot of books about the war. Spent spent an inordinate amount of time my podcast listening about the war, and I thought this was a very good film about aspects of America at war that normally are not touched on in film or book. Um, and this has Terrence Howard in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, Colin Farrell. And I think it's worth a lot of people's times. Grand Champion did not see. Crocodile Hunter Collision Course did not see. Oh, he's a producer on that. Tears of the Sun was fucking everywhere. That was... Tell me it was good. I can't tell you it was good. Did you like it? 
I didn't see it, but it, it was just it. everywhere. It was on every time you walked in a Hollywood video, every time you you turned on a TV, every time you and I, saw and an I, ad. And I, I never saw it. It's on Netflix forever. And which is unfortunate because I do like the director. Um, Who's the director? Oh, uh, it was. It's a uh, gosh. What do you do? I think he did Training Day. And Tom Fuqua. Yeah, I believe that's who it was. Actually, he's a great director. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm I'm generally a fan of his stuff, but I just never saw it. But I remember hearing except for that stuff. fucking King Arthur movie you did. <clears throat> yeah, that doesn't work unless you're John Borman. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I think that movie's phenomenal. We're going to pass Red Rocks Go Wild. Yeah, never mind. I don't remember him in uh, Full Throttle either. I don't either. Yeah. The whole 10 yards, like we were saying. Not good. Ocean's 12. Terrible. You had a, you had a big problem with Yeah, this. I've got a real problem with Ocean's 12. Ocean's 11 is tr- it's tremendous entertainment. It really is. And I thought that Ocean's 12 was the polar opposite of that. I found that a chore to get through, insufferable, and... In, like an in joke where people, the only people who are laughing at the people participating, participating in it. In it. Yeah, to a certain degree, it was sort of like the Oscars. It was a self congratulatory, masturbatory exercise that didn't do anybody any good. Now, Ocean's 13 was pretty, pretty entertaining. I like that one too. But Ocean's 11 was awesome. 12 was, I, 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 I didn't like that. It's, I usually like Soderbergh stuff, but that one I didn't have any use for. Yeah, I like 12. <laughs> I may be on an island. I agree. It's definitely. I may have just had a bad day when I saw it. Hostage? I don't know that. I saw that. He's like a sheriff in a small town. Mm. Sin- Hilarity and Sin-, Sin City. I saw that. I don't even know if I like that movie. It's I- definitely an interesting movie, and I'm glad they made it. It's an. It's sort of like a Four Rooms, where it's a. It's an exercise that I'm glad happened. The visuals were incredibly stunning. Yes. Um, and actually, as I, one of the problems that I, ha- I had with the visuals was I felt like there was something to decode. Like, I felt like there was a pattern that he was following that was up to the viewer to figure out. Mm-hmm. And particularly when you saw Mickey Rourke with the, the bandages on his face and how that was white and he was black and there was a background that was white and a doorway that was black. I thought there was going to be a pattern that was falling, and there, there was no pattern. No. So I was increasingly confused by the film. But I did, uh, years later, read the comic that it's based on. And I have to tell you that it is shockingly like the comic. It almost so, had to be. I never, I never read it. but it, Page for page. Yeah. It's, almost. That's a Frank Miller thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I didn't particularly care for the comic, mm-hmm. but I think that if I'd seen the comic and then went to see the movie, I think I would Different enjoy the movie more, yeah. Lucky number 11. Talk about twist endings. I well, cannot believe you have not seen this Well, movie. I'm looking here at 2006, and then he was in eight movies in 2006. Oh, shit. And man. I didn't see... Alpha Dog. I didn't see a single one of these things. Lucky number 11, 16 Blocks. Over the Hedge, Fast Food Nation. I didn't see that. Astronaut mm-hmm. Farmer. Didn't see that. Hair, Hammy's Hammy Boomerang Spoon. Adventure. Nah. The Hip Hop Project. Okay, so I saw half of these. Alpha Dog, I remember because that's when I think Olivia Wilde is in that one, and it was instantly like, "Who is her? Yeah, who she, is she? She pretty." Yeah. 
And uh, I think that's got Ryan Gosling and JT in it. It's got Justin Timberlake, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, lucky number 11 is worth your time, my friend. I, I've heard this. I remember I, maybe you've told me that in the past, and I haven't. I know it's got uh, Josh Hartnett. Yeah, in a, in a very brilliant role. I think he does very good in this. And then uh, 16 Blocks. I think maybe I have seen that's what the most deaf. Yeah. And it reminded me, maybe I did see that because it reminded me of The Gauntlet. Yes. I think yeah. maybe I did see it's that. A similar concept, yeah. yeah. Not a remake, but. No, I, no, but just kind of the same yeah. general concept. Send somebody to fail. No, I really I really enjoyed 16 Blocks. And it was almost like if, if John McClane had stayed in New York and had just gone downhill, I think. It's like he would he would be that character. Gotcha. But per- perfect stranger, never. Planet Terror, of course. <laughs> Great film. That is such a weird you, weird flick. Do you prefer Planet Terror or uh, Death Proof? Uh, Death Proof. Okay. I mean Rodriguez. For me, I I I have a hard time thinking of anything that I. Of his that I unabashedly liked after Desperado, I think. But Planet Terror was one of the his better ones that I recall. I love Planet Terror. Josh uh, Brolin kills in that movie. Yeah. Live free or die hard. Uh, I enjoyed it. God. Yeah, Timmy, Timothy Oliphant, and it's still terrible. I really enjoyed it. See, you know, I think... Am I remembering right, but weren't all the gunshot wounds CGI in that movie? I don't know. I think they might have been. So they forgot a few? Or No, no. It's just there's there's been a movement over the past, what, 20 years of <clears throat> action movies, right? Where they go away from squibs. You don't see Oh, them. yeah. And, and I, I, I can tell it's different for me. And I remember, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly, which I very well may not be, but I think I am, was that... This was one of the ones where I really noticed it, where it was like, okay, we don't have squibs. We're going to be doing CGI added gunshot wounds. And it's it just. Well, it, it makes it, sense for the latter. Was it PG-13 too? Oh, I, I don't think know. it might have been. It, you know, I don't remember anything crazy objectionable in that. It might have been. Which is just. Yeah, it's a PG-13 flick. Die Hard should not be PG thirteen. Correct. Ever. I mean. I mean that's it's it's a it's an it's not an adult movie because it's definitely a teenager movie, but it's a it's an R rated flick. It always should be. Yeah, I remember being just very disappointed. Although I remember, oh, Susie Q. That was her name. It's like, well, that's that's an interesting person. <coughs> But yeah, I didn't like that flick. I didn't see most of these. Nancy Drew, Assassination of a High School President, What Just Happened. But I did see Surrogates. That he did with... Uh, what's that girl's name from... The Fincher film. Gone Girl. Uh, Rosamund Pike? Yes, she's in this. Is she? Okay. This, this is actually a very relevant film that I think most people have not seen. I remember my wife and I seeing this in the theater going, why, why isn't everyone seeing this movie? Mm-hmm. 
and it's about how people in the future who have enough money and are privileged enough can actually have um, a robotic avatar go out and do their job for them. That sounds appealing. So in in her case, uh, she, uh, I believe that she was uh, physically disabled. Mm -hmm. And so she had this avatar go out. And in his case, he was a cop. So it was just safer for him to go out. But it was just, um, it was a very bizarre situation where their avatars actually look like plastic versions of themselves. Okay. And it was a very neat trick that, I don't know the makeup, like it was obviously Bruce Willis as his avatar, mm-hmm. right? But it, he looked different than when he did because effectively he never left the house. He went into a machine in his house and his avatar left the house. So it was, I don't, I don't think that the wealthy are, would ever do such a thing because they, particularly now where the wealthy are constantly on social media every time they leave their house, or even <laughs> time, right? They would never let someone else stand in for them. Well, but, no, don't want to lose that. But we, we do use avatars in our, our daily lives now. We do? We do. Well, yeah, like uh, people use uh, different photos on social media or they they play video games with avatars or uh, I, and they I guess, have aliases. I guess, I guess you're right. It's Since uh, it's just a little bit different for me, I'm not on. Right. I, I, right. I don't use... Yeah, I have a Facebook page, but I'm never, never on it. Well, I mean, even like even on this podcast, you know, I don't go by a different name. Right, right. Cop Out. I'll be interested in your thoughts on this. I've not seen Cop Out. And I think we talked about this in in another podcast. We might have, but there's a legitimate possibility I wasn't drinking Dr. Pepper at the time. Okay. well, I mean, Cop Out was a was a script that was. Running around Hollywood, it was on the famous blacklist, you know, mm-hmm. the top ten um, scripts that everybody in Hollywood thought, you know, these are the greatest, most valuable scripts that someone's got to make because they're, they're going to make a lot of money. And Bruce Willis attached himself to it. It was called A Couple of Dicks, <laughs> which which nobody – everyone said this, this will never pass. The developmental stage will never market it as A Couple of Dicks. But, right. And then, of course, um, the, the female – co-star in it i can't remember her name but when she when she attached herself to the project uh variety magazine ran her name in the title which is this co-star likes a couple of dicks <laughs> which i i just thought was that's so stupid it's, it's really stupid and really sexist but you know you wouldn't do that with a male co-star but but of course kevin smith eventually got this film and kevin smith said i would have no problem with my name in that title, mm-hmm. but you know, well, I am not my. Kevin Smith likes a couple of dicks. Well, he he would be the first to tell you that that's true. So, but the, I, I've not seen it. I I've, I've seen yeah. the Kevin Smith stories about it. Yeah, we're famously this is the film where Willis turned into like some great asshole mm-hmm. that was just unbearable to be with on set and. And Smith said it was it was as the filming went on, it was just more and more impossible to to direct him in certain scenes. And he would not do coverage if he didn't think the coverage was necessary. And then he wouldn't sit with his fellow actors trying to help them through the scene. And it was basically don't fucking bother me until I'm ready, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Smith's been ad nauseum about it on his many, many podcasts talking about this particular situation. 
But he has also said, yeah, he's going to podcast, Smodcast. But he's also uh, has said in the past few years that Willis actually has tried to reach out for him to him for uh, for various personal reasons mm-hmm. uh, to reconnect, and the, the, ultimately those reconnections were unsuccessful. But apparently Willis was completely unaware that there was all of this material in the public domain about what an asshole that he was because Smith said if he knew that, then why would he – if he knew that I was calling him an asshole for six years, why would he be trying to contact me to I don't know. Sometimes people out. do have, you know, get a conscience. Yes. And say, man, I'm sorry, I act like a jerkweed. Possible. I don't do it, but, I mean, I've heard of people doing such things. People do do such things. The Expendables. Yeah. Man, that's... Boy, The Expendables. So, The Expendables, Expendables 2 and Expendables 3. Expendables 3, uh, he was not in. No. Because he, he, he wanted, wanted too much th- money. $3 million for three days of work. Mm-hmm. And Stallone said no. And then Stallone turned around and hired uh, Harrison Ford. For like two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and the only stipulation was Harrison Ford had to fly a helicopter in the film, and Stallone was like, "Sold! <laughs> <laughs> I get a pilot and I get Harrison Ford." <laughs> I thought Red was that was that was that was entertaining. Another comic book movie. Oh, that was. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. And I thought it was good. Um, which what's your fame was was in it from Weeds. Uh yeah. Um. Mary Louise Parker? Yeah. I, I used to, when she was younger, used used to just run away from her. I just did not care for her acting at all. Okay. I think maybe because of fried green tomatoes and mm-hmm. the movie The Client that she was in with Susan Sarandon, the John Grissom yeah. movie. And it didn't didn't care for it at all. But Red, I liked quite a bit. Prob- yeah, I remember walking away saying that was way entertaining and Malkovich was top-notch. Ma- Malkovich was top-notch, but the first, second, third reason I go see Red or Red 2 is Helen Mirren. Mm-hmm. She has still got it. Set up. Never saw it. Direct to video. Catch 44. Well, I think now is almost to the point where we're getting to, it's like, okay, I've never even heard of these a lot of. Yeah, I, I haven't. The Black Mamba. I, it's a short film. Look how many movies he does in 2012. Lay the Favorite, The Cold Light of Day, Moonrise Kingdom, The Expendables 2, Looper, Fire with Fire. Now. Two of them. Two of these. Are excellent. Are unbelievable showstoppers. Moonrise Kingdom. And Looper. And Looper. I just saw Moonrise Kingdom for the first time this year. Mm-hmm. I was floored. And I it's, thought Willis's performance in it was... And it's one of those that... Why... I mean, we were going through the whole list there, and there's 8,000 movies. Yeah. And he did have a period there where he was trying to attach himself with good directors. I mean, he was never like Tom Cruise trying to, you know, catch mm-hmm. on with excellent directors. But he was fairly consistent. And then... You know, all of a sudden he rebounds with that, where he is with, you know, Wes Anderson. Yeah. It's just, he should have done it more often, unfortunately. I think that he would have been more satisfied. I mean, perhaps he was balancing that with the need that that a lot of these people have, where the standard of living just got way too Very high. plausible. I mean, there were, what, five, six movies there in that single year? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you look, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is equitable or not. People might be criticized for this but you look at johnny depp's situation mm-hmm. johnny depp was pulling in like 60 million a year and then now he's pulling in like three million a year and um you know maybe you should have played better i think that's always a criticism when, you, when you're making that much mega money you know right i but, get it um but i mean that's that's a real situation that a lot of people are in oh for sure you know you're making I, 30 grand a year and then all of a sudden you're punching a card well, even target. if he just wanted 
to make that much money. I'm not going to hold that against him. Yeah. It's just unfortunate from the art standpoint, if you will, that he was not so vigilant or maybe they just didn't want to hire him. Yeah, Seems or maybe it wasn't, wasn't right possible. for that role at that time. Yeah. yeah. Now, all those things could be true. I never saw Fire with Fire. Nope. I did say I did see A Good Day to Die Hard. I did not see that. That's and the only Die Hard I've passed on. I, I actually, that might be more relevant now. That's about how corrupt Russian society is. So, I mean, it is an action film. It is a Die Hard film in Russia. You mm-hmm. know, so a lot of people are like, come the fuck on. Like, you know, <laughs> Die Hard's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But, you know, uh, I actually enjoyed that quite a bit. These fucking G.I. Joe films. Boy, they're rough. I didn't see Snake Eyes. Did you see Snake Eyes? I did not see I, Snake Eyes. I, I had people tell me that that was the only one. The only one we're seeing? Yes. I, I don't know. I didn't so, see it. And I've wonder, never met anybody who said that, but I believe you. Sean Fennessy said that. Oh, uh, well, I on didn't hear that. Yeah, sometimes I have disagreements with Sean Fennessy. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm going to have to try it. I can't get away with it. It just seems like they have a very successful marketing campaign. I love G.I. Joe comics. Since I was a kid, I was in the G.I. Joe special mission. Oh, I had all the little figures. Oh, my, my God, yes. But I, I did see G.I. Joe Retaliation, and that was dog shit. It was. That's the one. Is that the one where the ice falls in the water? Oh, it might have been. I only... just remember suffering. It, it, it was probably a 90-minute movie that felt it was four Fucking hours long. stupid. And at the same time, it had people like Willis in it or um, I think Dennis Quaid from Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. who played General Hawk. It's a lot of good casting. Uh, Sienna Miller played the Baroness, which I thought was really good casting. You know, the, the, the problem didn't see, seem to be the casting. The problem seemed to be the script and the execution. Right. Just the problem was the movie. Right. <laughs> I never saw Sin City 2. No, I didn't either. Probably because I was rather lukewarm about the first one. The Prince. Direct video. Don't never, yeah. Vice. Rock the Casbah. Extraction. Was that? That's not the one that was on Netflix. Okay. That one was really good. Precious Curtain. Now now it's like. Now it's all direct to video. Marauders. Split. Um, I saw that. That was okay. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Venice. First Kill. Acts of Violence. No, no, no. The Death Wish remake. See, I didn't see that. That was great. That was an Eli Roth flick, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, I didn't see that. That was uh, people. People will attack that remake for the end of time. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, they're wrong. Okay. This, you know, the murder rate in Chicago got fucking crazy, and everybody in the country was making fun of it. Like, yay, you finally passed Detroit. Way to go, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, Eli Roth made a movie of it mm-hmm. and remade Death Death Wish with. Uh, Wilson, a sinner. I, I thought that was a, a fantastic way to critique uh, what was going on in our country. And there was an open, I feel, this is just my take on it. There was an open, honest discussion about Second Amendment rights. Which you, you well, just can't go around just saying. Well, since I haven't seen it. I, yeah, I, well, you, you ought to. I'd, I'd like your take on it. Uh, reprisal, airstrike. Glass. That's that's the uh, yeah. That's the other. Shalomalan produced that. I think no, he directed, he directed it. it. I just remember people being very mad about it. Oh oh oh! Here's one from 2019. Motherless Brooklyn. This is the one that Edward Norton directed. I did want to see that, but I did not. That was that was good. 
that was really that was very noir. And you know that's based on the pawnbroker. I don't know if you ever wrote that, read that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirby gave that book to me, and it was about this guy. The true story of Robert Moses, who effectively ran New York City with an iron fist over a period of twenty five years. Okay, where he was like, you didn't do anything in New York City without him. Like he ran, I think it was like six or seven uh, departments, like the plumbing and the water and the construction permits and all of that. And one of the things that he did was made sure all the bridges. Uh, in Manhattan were like 14 feet, nine inches because the buses needed a clearance of 15 feet, two inches. So it made sure that all the buses in Manhattan couldn't leave Manhattan. And that was so uh, no one from Harlem could go to Coney Island. Okay. Right. They had to take the subway. So then it was like, how do you make the subway so that no one from Harlem can get to Coney Island? It was, it was very much. And uh, it's effectively that character is in motherless Brooklyn and he's played by uh, Alec Baldwin, who does a fantastic job on that. You got to see that. All right, two minutes gone. Trauma Center. Nothing. Just a whole barrage of drive video. Survive the night. Hard kill. I heard that hard kill was good. Uh, breach. But my God, look at 2021. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven movies I've never seen, never heard of. And one of which appeared to have a theatrical release. Which one was that? Midnight in the Switchgrass. Switch I don't. I'm not familiar with it at all. 2022. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Golly, geez. Twelve. And five of them have yet to be released. Huh. Six. Six of them have not been released yet. That's. That's a sad end to a fantastic career. Agreed. But it's a. It's sad what he and his family are going through. So I'm very sorry to hear that. Bruce Willis, ladies and gentlemen. True American movie star. But going through his filmography, let's just say, for example, Die Hard. Where's Dennis Farina? Oh, in Die Hard, he would definitely be one of... Yeah, Dennis Farina would have been one of the FBI guys. Oh, of course. Now that makes perfect sense. (laughs) One of the Johnsons. No relation. <laughs> okay, so if that's the case, then... Okay, the last Boy Scout. Where is Dennis Farina? Oh, he would have been the uh, owner of the football team. Oh, that's good. I was thinking of like one of the cops who was trying to help Holland Beck nail the bad guy. That's fair, too. Because Dennis Farina famously was a cop in Chicago. Yes. Four rooms. Where is Dennis Farina? Oh, golly gee almighty. Couldn't begin to guess. Can you place him anywhere? <clears throat> He's the cop who comes in the middle of the night to make sure everything is okay. Oh, okay. There you go. Or he is the part that uh, Antonio Banderas played one of the two because he had a mustache. Armageddon. Where is Dennis Farina? Well, he is obviously... A general. He's at NASA, he's at right? NASA. Yeah. He's an administrator at NASA. Yeah, and he's yelling. All the time. Nonstop. Don't I say it. He, he Don't say just... it, Sidney. I'll take <laughs> this telephone and I'll bury it in your fucking head. As I, I guess he very well could have been Billy Bob Thornton in that. Just a louder version. 
in Hearts War, I nominate Dennis Farina for being um, an officer in the camp who was knocked off before General Hart got there. Colonel Hart. Question is, what does he play in Fifth Element? Is he Ruby Rod? <laughs> that would have made a better movie if he were Ruby Rod. I am not a – is it Rube? Is it Ru- no, Ruby? Ruby. Ruby Rod. Rod. I will take Dennis Farina over Ruby Rod any day of the week. So. Okay, the whole nine yards. He's a mobster. Come he's on, a, yeah, man. Say, he's, yeah, a he's a mobster. I just couldn't place which mobster he is. Wasn't he in that movie? The whole nine yards? He should have been if he wasn't. <laughs> It'd be funny if he was and we just forgot. That would be really terrible. 16 blocks. I nominate Dennis Farina for being the judge. Yeah. Second. Planet Terror. <laughs> He'd be a general. He's a general. <laughs> Bruce Willis works for Dennis Freeman. That That's movie. right. <laughs> Surrogates, of course, he would be a cop. And cop out, he would be a cop. He'd, He'd be, be the cop. police captain who's yelling all the time. Mm-hmm. The Expendables, he'd have that cameo. He would. Right, the Schwarzenegger cameo, like in Expendables 2. Mm-hmm. Red, he's like in red. He's like the negotiator. He's like the uh, the middleman who's always negotiating X Y. Moonrise Kingdom. I about to say I can't place him in that anywhere though. He's a parent of one of the kids. Grandparent, parents, I'm in that range. Grandparent would be yeah. good, particularly for this age. And then in any one of these direct video flicks, he would absolutely positively be a cop. Yeah. Just think about Death Wish. He'd be a doctor in Death Wish. Because that's what Paul Kersey, instead of being an architect in the remake, he's a he's a doctor. Okay. He's an MD. Well, that is our attempt to appreciate and positively assess one of the most momentous careers in the history of Hollywood. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you didn't like this, just turn on Die Hard or Pulp Fiction or Ocean's 12. Just not striking distance. Thanks.
VHS DVD Blu-ray. Purchase. Yes. Yes. yes, I did. You did. Laser disc. Laser disc. Which one was it? Do you remember? Uh, uh, the river movie. <laughs> hat. The one with the hat. The one with the hat. Uh, have Striking you ever? Striking distance.